What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. American Giant makes great clothing, sweatshirts, jeans, and more right here in the U.S. Visit American-Giant.com and get 20% off your first order with code STAPLE20. That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com, code STAPLE20. Welcome to Tell Me a Story I Don't Know, a refreshing and captivating interview with top sports personalities and their connections to Chicago. They reveal some entertaining, memorable, and emotional stories, some you've never heard before. I'm George Hoffman, and please make sure you subscribe to Tell Me a Story I Don't Know on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcast. And don't forget the free TuneIn app. We're there, too. Tell Me a Story I Don't Know is presented by Vienna Beef, makers of Chicago's hot dog on a Chicago landmark business since 1893. There is nothing like a Vienna hot dog or one of their Polish sausages, and their products are available coast to coast at ViennaBeef.com and through Amazon. Tell Me a Story I Don't Know is also sponsored by the Polina Market, Chicago's top purveyor of fine meats, poultry, fish, fresh frozen prepared foods, wine, beer, and now serving fresh sandwiches. They've been a staple in the city since 1949. This week, we welcome the great baseball analyst, Steve Stone. Harry, who couldn't see, as you know, is he had uh, Coke bottle thick glasses. He looks down, he saw his name on a sign. And he went, hey, what does that say? What does that sign say? So, being a wise guy, I said, it says, F you, Harry. Did you know Stoney owns a rather unique distinction? He's the only man to both play for and broadcast the Cubs and White Sox. But there's much more to Steve Stone, who was a Cy Young winner in 1980. He's also partnered with Hall of Famers Harry Carey and Hawk Harrelson, and perhaps a future one in Jason Benetti. He's an entrepreneur, a devotee of good food, an avid dog lover, and clairvoyant beyond your imagination. So, Steve Stone, tell me a story I don't know. Well, I'll tell you actually what precipitated the turnaround in the middle of 1979. Uh, I was on the Orioles. I was six and seven at the time. And the Orioles were on their way to winning 102 games. And my pitching coach was a very good one by the name of Ray Miller came up and he said, you know, bring batting practice today. And we were in Oakland. He said, I want to sit down with you and Earl because I'm tired of you complaining about Earl. And I, sure as hell am tired about Earl complaining about you. So I'm going to sit between you to make sure nothing happens, and then you can say whatever it is you want to say, and that will be that. So there we were in a back room in the Oakland Coliseum, and we had 
those school chairs, you know, that you write on in front, you're sitting in the chair and you have that little uh, desk in front of you. Mm -hmm. And they were head to head with Ray Miller in the middle of us. And Earl says, you go first. <laughs> so I told Earl, uh, at that point, I was really frustrated with him and with the situation. Um, I said to Earl, look, Earl, this is from the bottom of my heart. I find you one of the most disgusting human beings I've ever been around, both in and out of baseball. And I would really hope that when this season is over, that you trade me anywhere you want to, because I not only don't want to play for you anymore, I would just as soon never see you. And Earl said, okay, is that it? I said, that's it. He said, well, look, I got you over here to be my fifth starter and the book, and he holds up his hand. The book says that you're a loser. I don't want you to be a loser but you're under 500, you're a loser. So that's kind of what I got. And I figured I had you for four years, but you know, it's not working out that great. As far as trading you, he said, this is how this is gonna work. If I can find somebody next year who can do the job better than you, then he'll be here and you'll be gone. If I can't, then you'll be here. And that's pretty much the way it is. He said, let me tell you what I'm gonna do. You've got a very good team here. I'm gonna give you two starts after the All-Star break. And then, when we get to September 1st, I'm going to go to a three-man rotation. If you're in the three-man rotation, you'll start. If not, you'll be in the bullpen. And I was always terrible in the bullpen. But I said, oh, I got a good chance of being your top three, Earl. You got Jim Palmer's won three Cy Young Awards. You got Mike Flanagan, who's likely to win it this year, which he did. I said, you've got Dennis Martinez, who you believe is your son. And you've got <laughs> Scott McGregor, who might be the second best left-hander in the league behind Flanagan. I said, what chance do I have of being in the top three? And Earl said, I don't care. I'm telling you what I'm going to do. And that's the way this is going to work. So at any rate, I went home, did a lot of different things, did a lot of soul searching, took out a yellow legal pad, wrote down all the reasons why I wasn't as successful as I could be or thought I could be. Knowing that there was a good pitcher in there, I just had no idea how to get him out. Didn't know if he was there for sure. I just thought there was a good pitcher in there. Anyway, long story, a little bit longer. Uh, I made 50 starts, 5-0 from the middle of 1979 to the end of 1980. And in 50 starts, I lost seven times. When you say he's changed his style, originally he was a fast baller. Oh, he was a hard grower. He has learned how to pitch. He had to because of the rotator cuff. He has now become a pitcher. Dean Stone, the first American League pitcher since Denny McLean to pitch three hitless innings. It was a little bit of a, a spur from Earl, but it was a lot of the mental aspect of competition and how to harness that. And using various things like imagery, creative visualization, self-hypnosis, and a number of other mind tricks, I call them mental gymnastics, I turned my career completely around. Uh, I made the All-Star team in 1980, won the Cy Young Award, and had one of the really great 50-game start runs um, in baseball in, you know, a long time. So there was only two guys in the last four decades, the last 40 years plus, only two have won 25 or more games. Uh, me and Bob Welsh, he is no longer around. He's in the big ballpark in the sky, but I remain the only living uh, gentleman who's won as many as 25 over the last four decades. And that was a single season and still is a single season record for the Baltimore Orioles. So I credit Earl certainly with the, uh, with what he felt was a motivating tool, but also it was the mental aspect of it that really turned things around. When you think back to it now, it's 40-plus it's years later, 
Does it surprise you at all what you did? It doesn't really because I always felt uh, competition is an interesting thing because in baseball, it's not like boxing. In boxing, if you weigh 160, you're a middleweight, you're going to fight a guy who weighs 160. You weigh 145, you're a welterweight, you're going to fight another welterweight. But in baseball, I'm five nine and a quarter. At my zenith, I was 182 pounds. I was going to have to get out guys who are 6'5", 240. I was going to have to get out guys who are bigger, stronger, quicker, and faster than I was. I was going to have to get out Hall of Famers. I was certainly never one of those. I was going to have to get out guys that were just so much better than me that they were stars of the game. I was never one of those guys. But I had to figure out on this particular day how I'm going to get them out because they're standing in the way of me and winning a baseball game between me and success. So I realized there was three things that I had control over and only three. I couldn't allow anybody to out-prepare me. I couldn't allow anybody to outwork me. And I couldn't allow anybody to want it more than I did. And that encompasses a lot of different things because if my opponent and I had the same ability, then if he did two of those three things better than I did, he was going to win. And to turn things around, I decided to take care of the things I had control over I worked physically, I worked my butt off. Mentally, I changed things around. And I knew with every performance, I was more prepared for that performance than the guy that I was performing against. And so that's what allowed me to get out a lot of guys who later went to the Hall of Fame and allowed me to beat them. I couldn't be better over the long haul. I just had to be better than them tonight. And that was the key. I used to even look at sometimes on a, on a key pitch, I would stand on the mound and not even look at Rick Dempsey, the catcher. I'd look right in the hitter's eyes, just stare at him. And I think they thought I was crazy. But what I was trying to tell him was, you've got no chance because tonight is my night. And invariably, they would step out. I never, I never disengaged my eye contact with the hitter until he stepped out. And when he stepped out, I knew that I had him. You know, you've been doing this now, the business of being an analyst, pretty much really after you did win the Cy Young Award. So tell me a story I don't know when you had an inkling this might be your profession after your playing career. Well, having won the Cy Young Award, obviously, uh, it was a big deal around Baltimore. Uh, and so the next spring training, which was the spring training of 1981, I got invited back to Baltimore from Miami, which is where we trained. And I was going to be on the Jerry Lewis telethon with a, a guy, an anchor, a sports anchor on uh, Channel 2, I believe, by the name of Ted Patterson. And so I thought, you know, I'm going to be on for 10 minutes. I'm going to say, you know, this is a wonderful, a, a wonderful thing that you can do for all of these people. And please give as much as you possibly can. And then you know, after 10 minutes, I get things together, take the makeup off, and then go back to Miami. Well, that wasn't the case. Because Ted and I sat down before and he said, okay, so in the first segment, we're going to do this, this, and this. Then in the second segment, we're going to do, and then he said, and in the third, I said, hold on for a second. What do you mean segments? He <laughs> said, yeah. I said, I just thought I'm going to do like a guest appearance and ride into the sunset. He says, oh, no, you're a co-host. I said, I can't co-host. I've never done any of this before. He said, eh, don't worry about it. It's like, it's like riding a bicycle. So I said, yes, but it's riding a bicycle. If you've ridden one before, I've never done this. Anyway. When the camera first came on, when I saw the red light, initially I was very uncomfortable. And then as time moved on, all of a sudden I couldn't wait for the red light to come out. 
at the end of that, I went in, they took my makeup off and everybody was kind of, uh, you know, going their separate ways. And I walked by the television studio and one of the cameras they used, those big clunky cameras in those days, it was in a locked position. It was straight, it was st straight down staring at the floor. And from a side profile, I looked at the camera. Nobody was there, just me and in the studio looking at that camera. And I thought, that's it. That's what you're going to do when this is over. I just didn't know how it manifests itself. And so I gave my retirement speech on June 2nd. I got a call from Chuck Howard, the vice president of ABC Sports. And he asked me, uh, he, uh, the secretary came out and said, you got two phone calls. One was for David Hartman. He wants you to be on Good Morning America tomorrow. And there was from Chuck Howard. I think you better call Chuck first. I think he has a job for you. So I called him back. He said, look, Keith Jackson's going on vacation. Would you like to do a couple of Monday night baseball games? And I thought, well, yeah, sure. <laughs> he said, look, we don't think it's fair to evaluate you on two. We could get you a third game, but it would be in four days, and it would be in Montreal. I know you've been in the American League the last six years. And I said, uh, he said, would you feel comfortable doing that? And I said, Chuck, I'll do Japanese baseball. Just put me on the air. Because <laughs> I, I realized that that literally was the brass ring. Nobody knew who I was beforehand. I mean, they sent me the wrong Cy Young Award, for God's sakes. I opened the package after waiting my whole life to get this award. I opened the package, and it says, you know, most valuable pitcher, Steve Carlton. <laughs> Steve Carlton. They only had two really? choices. It was me in the American <laughs> League, Steve Carlton in the National League. He had, he had had a couple of these already. He didn't need this other one. This was the only one I was destined to get, and they sent me his. So that gives you an idea of how well-known I was at the time. And so I took advantage in my, uh, my first game on ABC Monday Night Baseball. It was with Al Michaels and Don Drysdale. My second game was Al Michaels and Howard Cosell. And then my third game was just me and Don Drysdale. I was looking forward to only having two guys in the booth. And then the game got rained out, and they signed me for the rest of the year. I wound up working two years with ABC Monday Night Baseball. But in the second year, um, they came a call in from WGN, and I became Harry's partner. And the second year, I worked with the Cubs and with ABC. I knew that ABC wasn't my future, but I knew that I could make a, a job and a career for myself with Harry and the Cubs. And so I chose that and, and walked away from ABC Monday Night Baseball. But it was a great, it was great learning. I mean, you're talking about the two play-by-play -play men were legendary guys. Al Michaels, who ironically was one of the great baseball broadcasters in the country. Now he's made his, his profession with, uh, with football. And Keith Jackson, who was one of the great uh, college football announcers, and he was doing baseball. And so I worked with them. The four analysts were me. Howard Cosell, Bob Euchre, and Don Drysdale. I mean, this was basically the who's who of sports broadcasting at the time, and that's how I learned uh, or prepared for my craft. The easiest way to hear more great guests on Tell Me a Story I Don't Know is to follow me on social media, at George Offman. That's O-F-M-A-N, just one F, on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and the free TuneIn app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tell Me a Story I Don't Know is presented by Vienna Beef, Chicago's hot dog and a Chicago institution since 1893. If you've had a hot dog, chances are it was from Vienna. And did you know there are more locations selling Vienna in Chicago than McDonald's, Burger King, and Wendy's combined? 
There's nothing like biting into a juicy and delicious pure beef Vienna hot dog dragged through the garden, which includes yellow mustard, onions, relish, tomatoes, sport peppers, pickles, and some celery salt, and oh, those Polish sausages dripping with flavor. And look for the new spicy smoked sausage available in your local retail stores. It includes a perfect blend of seasonings such as crushed red peppers and brown sugar creating a bold and zesty taste. Vienna products are available in restaurants, grocery stores, and entertainment venues such as the ballpark, socks and cubs, stadiums, museums, and the zoos. Plus you can purchase them online coast to coast at ViennaBeef.com and Amazon. And remember, Vienna's not just hot dogs and sausages. Look for their farm makers' chili, mini bagel dogs, condiments, and classic deli meats. Take it from a guy who was weaned on, then sold Vienna products. It's the mark of excellence since 1893. Check them out at ViennaBeef.com. When you joined Harry in 1983, he'd already become a, a legend in this town, and of course, mostly on the south side, where he developed a partnership with Jimmy Pearsall to this day, Steve, might be the most celebrated and controversial duo in baseball history. Let's let's just say that you're vastly different than Pearsall. We'll leave it at that. But you were relatively new to the business. So tell me a story how you developed who you are today working with Harry. Well, it was very easy. Uh, I was on the Harry show. And some nights I had bigger parts. Some days I had bigger parts. At the time, the uh, you know it was all day games at Wrigley Field. So I usually started to talk when Harry ran out of breath. There's a drive way back. It might be. It is another home run. Holy cow! Dawson's eighth of the year. Three to nothing in favor of the Cubs. RBI number 24, and with that home run, Andre Dawson moves to fifth on the all-time opponent home run list in this ballpark. Johnny Bench heads that list, but Andre, with 19 home runs here in Cincinnati, loves to hit in this park. And at first, Harry wanted to have the only microphone. When we did our on-camera, we were the only broadcasting duo where one guy didn't have a microphone. Because when Harry wanted to talk, he just dragged the mic away, and I couldn't talk because there was no microphone. <laughs> and plus, he had, he had the same IFB in his ear. He had only one. So he knew when they were starting from down in the truck, but I had no idea. I mean, it wasn't like the network. The network, on an 8 o'clock start, they counted you down to 8 o'clock. Everybody had their own mic. Everybody had their own IFB in their ear. You knew exactly what was happening. You heard the countdown. And, you know, when they went, it, you were live, and they went. But it wasn't like that with WGN. So I thought I lost my job um, the first broadcast I was ever on. Uh, it was Harry and I sitting there. If you remember where the old booth was at Wrigley Field, it was under the overhang on the, on the third base side of, of yeah, the field. Yeah. And uh, it was a booth, and we would, we would look at the camera, which was on a catwalk, and looked at the camera looking out toward left field. And Harry had the IFB, and Harry had the mic. And so I was sitting there. This is a little uncomfortable because I only worked, you know, like most broadcasters, I had my own mic, but not with Harry. So um, Harry, who couldn't see, as you know, is he had uh, Coke bottle thick glasses. He looks down. He saw his name on a sign. And he went, hey, what does that say? What does that sign say? So being a wise guy, I said, it says, F you, Harry. So <laughs> Harry grabs the mic, puts it under his armpit because he could tell where I was going with this. 
see, it was it was not 120 yet. It was 117. But when the leadoff man ended, whenever it was, we just came on because they had blocked out from 1 to 120. I thought at the time, never having done a game at Wrigley Field, that 120 meant you're on at 120. No, it didn't mean that at all. So here he puts the microphone under his armpit, stifles the sound, and after the on-camera, which I was sweating bullets, I thought, this is my first broadcast and I've lost my job on the first day. This has got to be a record because, you know, I don't think if you're coming on the air with one of those, you're going to survive that, even back then. But uh, as it turned out, Harry screamed at me a little bit, Bob, watch what you say around an open mic. And as you know, there's a lot of guys uh, since that time that uh, have had uh, a, a, lot of, a lot of difficulty with uh, mics that they didn't know were open and things got out. So uh, it was a lesson learned at a very early age. And, uh, you know, Harry and I were together for 15 years, 15 at times tumultuous, at times magical, at times wonderful years. And, uh, you know, then he passed away and I started to work with Chip. Hello again, everybody. Welcome to Cubs baseball. I'm Chip Carey, joined by Steve Stone. Last night, a great ball game. The Cubs won it 4-1 to the final score. The matchup with the Sluggers didn't really materialize, Stoney. They went 0-9 for with six strikeouts. It was like a couple of heavyweights who spent 12 rounds swinging at nothing but air. and that's That takes me to a story that Chip told me for the same podcast. So he says the very first day that he worked with you on Cubs broadcast in 1998, he said when the game was over, you put your headphones down in a way in which he thought, uh-oh, I goofed. Instead, you thanked him saying, you let me be Steve Stone and not Harry Carey's partner. So it was the passing of the torch, and it got me to thinking, Steve, that's happened twice in your career when Hawk Harrelson retired and the torch was passed to Jason Benetti. It was like kind of giving you a new lease on life twice in your broadcast career. Well, it's been, it's been really wonderful. It was great. You know, all the guys that I work with in between, like uh, Dwayne Stats I worked with, you know, he did the middle three innings. I, at one point, did the middle three innings play-by-play, and Dwayne Stats didn't like that, so he insisted on the play-by-play, and I moved over to be an analyst. But it was Tom Brenham and I worked with, and we were together six years in the middle three, and he was wonderful to work with. Chip was great to work with. But um, I'm working with a guy that if people don't know him yet, and most people do who are sports fans, they're going to know Jason Benetti. And the reason they're going to know him is, along with Joe Davis, these are two of the greatest broadcasters in this country who can do every sport. And the biggest accolade I could probably give to Jason was that if you hear him doing football or you hear him doing basketball or you hear him doing baseball, which is his favorite sport, by the way, baseball. But when you hear him do another sport, he sounds like that's his primary sport. So when you're listening to him do a football game, you think he is a full-time football broadcaster. Same thing with basketball. And nobody outworks this guy. He is as professional as they come. He is relentless as far as his preparation for a game. If the game, you know, for instance, of a baseball game, if they ever get to the point where they go 18 innings again, Jason's going to have stories for 18 innings. I mean, that's just what he does. That was Pikachu, who's a Pokemon. Have you heard of Pokemon? Heard of a Kinkachu? I don't <laughs> Pikachu. Ah, no. Uh, so Pikachu was walking around, and then Slugger picked up what's called a Pokeball which is a ball that holds Pokemon. And then when you throw it, another one pops out. Now that didn't happen here, and Pikachu is getting bludgeoned yeah, by Slugger. It looks like he is stomping on him, not content to use the Pokeball.
it was wonderful because I was with a guy that didn't ask a lot of questions in Hawk Harrelson. I mean, look, he's a Hall of Famer. Uh, he's a White Sox legend. His mark on the White Sox will never go away. In the opening yesterday, opening day 2011, Sox put a little showtime with the bats on. They jumped out to a 14 to nothing lead, held only one at 15 to 10. Mark Burley picking up the victory. So this afternoon, trying to make it two in a row with Edwin Jackson. Couldn't pick a better man to go to the mound because of his career history against these Indians. He's seven and one lifetime. But he wasn't the most interactive of broadcasters. Jason is. And one of the things that he really says, which is interesting, he's able to keep a question very short and allow me to elaborate on it. Like, I'll make a baseball point. And usually that's the end of it. But Jason will come in and say, why? A one-word question. And then I get to take what I've said and really go in-depth on that. So it's a pleasure to broadcast with him. We do have conversations. He understands the light aspect of the game. The fact is every game cannot be a classic. Some games are awful. Some games are over before the second inning. Some games, you know, are tense and tight. Then you, you, you adjust to those games also. But working with Jason has been uh, a wonderful thing for me to do uh, because the one regret that I had had, and this is not a knock, this is not really a knock on Hawk at all, because uh, I did work with Eddie Farmer also on radio one year with the White Sox. And at times toward the end with Harry was the same thing. I, I regretted the fact that the fans of the Chicago White Sox never really got a chance to listen to, I guess, for lack of a better term, the depth of knowledge I have in the game. But I've been in the game my whole life, uh, you know, professionally, parts of seven decades. Tell me a story I don't know how you had to convince Jerry Reinsdorf to hire Jason. I don't think, I, I still didn't believe that Jerry knew exactly how good Jason was. Now, he had hired him, but he hadn't given him that long-term deal to give him security that he would be here. So after the first week, week we worked together, I went into Jerry and I said, look, I said, I don't presuppose to ask you or tell you anything about business because you're the ultimate businessman. You know, you've made a, a fortune being a businessman and understanding the business, whether it's the business of baseball or the business of, uh, of development or real estate or anything along those lines. I said, you do that really well. I said, but I do this really well. And I want you to understand something. If you don't give Jason Benetti a long-term deal here pretty soon, I said, ESPN is going to come down with a Brinks truck full of cash and they are going to tie him up. So he'll be theirs forever. And I said, and the reason is, this guy is going to the Hall of Fame as a broadcaster, as Jerry's quick to say, the Ford Frick Award. It is the Broadcasting Hall of Fame, regardless of what Jerry says, but that's, you know, that's the highest honor that we as broadcasters can get. And I said, this guy is not only the perfect story for the White Sox, because he was raised a White Sox fan. He wanted to be the White Sox broadcaster from the time he was a little guy. And so I said, the story is really good. But don't underestimate his ability. I said, he is an outstanding broadcaster. Not a run-of-the-mill guy. Not a good guy. One of the best guys in the business. And he's just going to get better and better. Well, as it turned out, uh, you know, a year or so, whatever it was later, uh, they did sign Jason for a long-term deal. And Jerry, I think, recognized that uh, he was dealing with a unique talent. Not only is he the only major sport broadcaster with CP, but he also 
wanted to be the White Sox broadcaster. You know, it's funny to think now that you became the Cy Young winner because there was a time in your life growing up in Ohio where one might have thought that you would be the champion, say, of the U.S. Open or Wimbledon. Tell me a story I don't know about a very important choice you made early on. Well, there was a couple of choices to be made, and I really enjoyed tennis, and that was uh, that was what you did in the time you weren't playing baseball. Um, and I got to the point where um, I won a city championship in singles and doubles both. And I had I lost the, in, in the championship round uh, the last the last match, uh, two of three. I lost the first set, and I was losing the second set five to nothing, and. I took a timeout, uh, and I walked. I remember walking out of the court to the water fountain. I sat there. I let the water uh, get on my face, and I said, there's no way in the world you can lose this. There's no way in the world you're going to, you're going to lose this. And I just sat there until I was ready, and I came back, and I fought back and uh, tied, up, tied up the match at 5-5 only to win it. 7-5. No, no, wait a second. Only to win at 14-12. to 12. It was 14-12 wow. to 12 in, the, in that set, and it took so much out of my opponent that uh, I, I, I won the third set 6-love. So that was the first time that I had an experience with um, force of will, taking a situation and refusing to lose. And so any, everything worked really well, and I played basketball and scored 60 points one night and did a lot of good things because, you know, look, I was pretty athletic, very coordinated, but, but small. And so uh, my dad sat me down at the age of 13 and said, look, if you want to be a jack of all trades, that's fine. He said, but your two best sports are baseball and tennis. Being a pitcher, you can't do both because it's going to put too much strain on your arm. So choose one. He said, I don't care what you choose, but choose one if you want to try to take it as far as you can possibly take it. So I put down my tennis racket because I loved baseball and I liked tennis. Put down my tennis racket and didn't touch it again until uh, I was 26. We had a strike. I started playing tennis again. Um, I had a two-hand backhand when I was 12 and 13 years old because I wasn't strong enough to, to hit a good, you know, a, a good topspin backhand shot. And uh, they said, oh, you can't hit a two-hand backhand. The only guy in the world at the time that did it was a guy by the name of Pancho Segura. He had a two-hand backhand. So then, obviously, as we know, two-hand backhands became, <laughs> became the thing. Everybody in the world used it. And uh, uh, when I came back after 13 years, I could hit all of the shots that I had trouble with as, as a kid. Uh, overheads, I just buried overheads because it was a pitching motion. Um, you know, backhands, I didn't have to use two hands anymore. I could actually use one hand. And the, my topspin lob, lob needed a little bit of work, but... Uh, I could, I could get things, and I really enjoyed it. And all of a sudden, I said to myself, hold on. You're, in, you're a major league pitcher. You can't be playing tennis again. So I put down a tennis racket again, and then I, I played later on. So uh, that was, yeah, that was uh, something that I really enjoyed. And um, not a whole lot of people were playing tennis at the time. I think my path to big-time tennis might have been a little easier had I chosen that, but my love was baseball. 
Tell Me a Story I Don't Know is presented by the Polina Market. And if you haven't been there, what are you waiting for? It's been Chicago's premier market for the finest meats since 1949, and it's only getting bigger and better. From the popular Wagyu steaks to their porterhouse and tomahawk selections, Polina leads the way, and you might just spend hours there perusing the frozen food section. Everything made fresh, including chicken pot pies, pulled pork, and a variety of meatloaves. You like brats? I love them, including their pork variety, which is so juicy and tasty on the grill. And now the Polina Market has seafood and sandwiches from the deli and wine and beer to match anything you buy. Plus, they expanded again, making the in-store experience even better, but you can still order online to pick up. Take my word for it, the Polina Market is as good as it gets and conveniently located at 3501 North Lincoln Avenue in Chicago. Check them out on their impressive website at polinamarket.com. Mention you found them through this podcast. Now I want to tell you a story you don't know about Steve and me. We're sitting in a booth during a spring training game. This is a number of years ago. And now we're talking baseball and suddenly, seemingly out of nowhere, you said of the man who was coming to the plate, watch George, he's going to double to right. And I'm looking at you, sure he is. And of course, he doubles to right. And I simply stared at you and you smiled back at me. You have an uncanny ability to predict outcomes, but of course you have an uncanny ability to tell stories. So let's get to another involving a former Sox manager who was a member of the fabled 1969 Cubs. So I'm in the back of the bus with Don Kessinger and we're in Baltimore. And we're going to, um, we're going to play the Orioles. It was the beginning of September. And I just sat there and I looked at Kessinger and I said, now this is 1978. I said, um, guess who's going to manage the White Sox next year? And he said, who? I said, well, guess. <laughs> so he mentions a few names. I said, no, 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 no. He said, well, who? I said, you. He said, me? <laughs> he said, I got one year left on my contract. Then I'm going home and help raise my boys. I said, I know. He said, I don't want to manage. I said, yeah, I know that too. He said, so then what are you talking about? I said, well, the fact that you're going to manage this team next year. He said, no, that's wrong. And how many people, how many people know this or think this? I said, well, right now there's just two. There's you and me. <laughs> I said, but soon Bill Vick's going to come to the realization that um, you're the next guy. So anyway, he just poo-pooed it, and that was that. So now – we get off the road, I go into Bill Beck, and I said, I want you to do me a favor. And he said, what's that? I said, when you name Don Kessinger the manager next year, I want you to name me as the pitching coach. He said, you're a pitcher. I said, yes, but he's a player. He's got one more year left on his contract. Uh, he said, well, that's not going to happen. I'm talking to Joe Sparks, and I'm talking to this guy, and I'm talking to that guy. I said, I, I know. Uh, and eventually, when you talk to all of them and you name Kessinger, name me your pitching coach because your young pitchers aren't ready yet. And you've had a player coach already. And Lou Boudreau, he won the World Series in 48. He was 24 years old. Kessinger is more mature than that. He's had a lot of experience. And, you know, he's going to be your guy. He says, he's not going to be my guy. I said, just remember what I told you. So anyway, time clicked, clicked along. Now we got about 10 days left in the season. 
And Kessinger comes up to me and he says, hypothetically, um, who would you pick as a pitching coach? And I said, I told you at the back of the bus as we were heading to Memorial Stadium in Baltimore, I would pick me. I'm the best guy to do that job. He says, you're still pitching. You can't pick you. If you if you get your choice of everybody else, who are you going to pick? I said, if I couldn't pick me? He says, yes, if you couldn't pick you. I said, the guy's Fred Martin. I said, he's the guy that taught Bruce Suter how to throw the splitter. I said, he's sitting in Arizona not doing anything. You remember him from your time with the Cubs when he was there. I said, he would be the guy. So he said, okay, you think he's good? I said, yeah, I think he's pretty good. I said, but I think you're ignoring the fact that I'm better. So he just laughed. And then that was that. Two weeks after the season was ended, Don Kessinger was named manager of the Chicago White Sox for 1979. And a couple weeks after that, Fred Martin was named the pitching coach. And then you won a Cy Young Award in 1980. And um, I played 79. I was offered a four-year contract with Baltimore. I went to play with them. And um, when I got, when I got, that offer, I went in to see Bill again. I said, you know, I'll, I'll stay here in Chicago. I said, just make me the player pitching coach. you got a player manager. And he said, no, we can't do that. you got security there. They're offering you a four-year deal. you got to go to Baltimore. And ironically, Bill was my biggest cheerleader for going to Baltimore. He was ecstatic when I won the side. He called me. I mean, um, it was great. He let me resurrect my career because he gave me that one-year contract when nobody else would. That was uh, – that was – I was, I was a free agent in the first free agent class. I was the first Cub ever to be a free agent. And they lost me to, of all places, the White Sox. They lost me for nothing. And I wound up winning 15 games and leading their staff in victories in 77. You're listening to Tell Me a Story I Don't Know with longtime Chicago baseball analyst Steve Stone. It's 1983. It's your first year with the Cubs. But I believe it's also a year you did something rather daring. You posed for Playgirl magazine, which was the Playboy magazine for women. And let's just say you were mm, scantily clad. Tell me a story I don't know, Stoney. Why did you do that? What was the reaction, especially from your, your new employers? And what do you think of it now? Well, you have to understand that I was not employed with WGN when I did that. <clears throat> and so I just figured, hey, It'll be fun. Why not? I was in the best shape of my life. And so, uh, yes, I, I, although there was no frontal or rear nudity, I did have no clothes on. <laughs> so uh, I, I don't know. Everybody asked me, why did you do that? And I said, because my mother always wanted pictures of me out of uniform. <laughs> and this was, this was as much out of uniform as I could possibly get. So, um, yeah, so, so I did it. And, um, you know, it keeps on popping up. They put it on Twitter and all that kind of stuff. Everybody, everybody, you know, the keyboard warriors are alive and well on Twitter most all the time. And so I, I, I you know, compared to some of the other real famous people, um, they, you know, I don't have that many followers, but I think I've got 52,000 followers, which is pretty good for a, a local guy trying to get along. And, uh, you know, so it pops up every now and then it's, it's really no big deal. And, um, you know, look, it's something that I did. Like I say, I was in the best shape of my life. So why not? Um, as, as they say, uh, nobody died and nobody got hurt. So, uh, you know, that was that, you know, besides being a, an outstanding baseball analyst, you're a businessman a long time ago, you got into the food business with a rather renowned entrepreneur. Tell me a story. I don't know about your relationship with lettuce entertain you. 
Well, what happened was that two Chicago Bears lived across the hall, Bob Asher and Bob Newton. They were the right guard and right tackle. And um, they came over. We were talking because we're on the same floor. And they said, you got to go to this restaurant. It's a really good one. And the owner gives the athletes free beer. I said, well, I don't drink beer. So, well, come on over anyway. So it was R.J. Grunts, and it was a wonderful restaurant. Oh, had yeah. a salad bar. And, you know, it was just great. And it's still in business today. Yep. And so um, um, I kept going in, and I really liked the restaurant. So I saw Rich Melman one day. This is 1973. And I asked him if I could see him in his office, which was downstairs. The office is literally the size of a phone booth, maybe not much bigger than that. So he sat down. And he said, what can I do for you? He said, my name's Steve Stone. I pitched for the Chicago White Sox. He said, yeah, I know. Now, Richard has always been a Cub fan. But uh, being a Chicago guy, he likes to see both teams do well. But he's primarily a Cub fan. So uh, he said, okay, um, what, what is it you'd like to talk to me about? I said, I want to be your partner. And he laughed. He said, I said, no, I mean, I want to be your partner. I think I've got a feel for this business. He goes, look, a lot of people want to be my partner. I have a good restaurant. I said, yeah, but you're going to have a lot more restaurants. And I want to be a part of that. And he kind of went, go away, little boy. Um, and so I don't really, in something I want to do, I don't take no for an answer very well. So one block down from Rich's restaurant was a restaurant called Mel Marcon. Oh, yeah. And Mel, Mel was the leading competitor in Lincoln Park with Richard. And I walked right from Richard's office right into Mel's restaurant in the middle of the afternoon. And I said, Mel, can I talk to you for a second? Introduce myself. I said, I'll tell you what. Teach me the restaurant business. You won't have to pay me, and I'll get you an article in every one of the three major newspapers in Chicago. Um, and he said, well, that's great. I mean, obviously, it didn't cost him anything, and he was going to get some visibility. So I did that and then went out to California, tried to do a place that fell through. Came back uh, after, after two months of working with Mel and then another month trying to put this restaurant together in California. I came back. I went back into Richard's place, and I, I said, do me a favor, will you? I said, I, I tried to do a restaurant in California. couldn't get it done. I said, I've done everything in the business. I've cut meat. I've waited tables. I've managed. I've done the bar. I said, I'm a little weak on the bartending, just a little, not much. Can you have one of your bartenders teach me uh, or just, you know, polish off my bartending skills? He said, sure. He said, why'd you go to work for Mel? I said, because I am going to get in the restaurant business. I just don't know if it's going to be with you. And he stopped and he said, look, I, I, at that point, they had done their second place, Fritz, that's it, in Evanston. He said, I'm going to have another place in the not-too-distant future, and I will come to you and put you in the restaurant business. Don't get involved with anybody else. It'll, it'll go under, and you'll lose your money and whatever. I said, okay. So about four months later, he came to me, and he was doing the Great Gritsby's Flying Food Show on oh, yeah. uh, uh, right, yeah, 20, 25 East Chestnut. And so he said, what kind of, what kind of investment would make you comfortable? I said, how about one where if the restaurant goes out of business, I get my money back? And he said, you got it. And he shook my hand. I made my first restaurant deal with him where if the restaurant went out of business, I got my whole investment back. And, and, that's, and it's 45, close to 46 years later, and Richard and I are still together. I have 32 restaurants. Um, right now is not a great time to be in the restaurant business, as you could imagine. But um, uh, it's, he's a wonderful man, and uh, I couldn't ask for a better partner all of this time. I mean, literally, when he tells you something, you don't need a lawyer. You don't need a piece of paper. If Richard tells you it's going to be one way or he's going to do one thing, then he just does it. He's one of the great men that we've had the, the pleasure of uh, interacting with in Chicago. Um, I think the city is much better for, uh, for Richard being there. And nationally, he is at least 
in the top two of most acclaimed restaurateurs, maybe the best restaurateur in the country. I, I wouldn't be surprised, Steve, if I put a, a few dollars in your pocket. I've probably been to at least three quarters of those restaurants over the course of 45 years. Well, I think I think it would be wonderful, and I, I would encourage you uh, to spend as much as you can at Shaw's. It's my number one holding. I have Joe Stone Crab. I have in there. I have a couple of a couple of others around. We've had we have five in Las Vegas. We have uh, some in California. We have three or four in Washington D.C. I lose track. In closing, I asked all my guests this same final question: If not for baseball, which led you to this great broadcast career, what would you have been? Well, there is no if not baseball because I would have been in baseball. I just wouldn't have been a professional baseball, at least to start with, anyway. Um, I got a, a degree. I went back after my first year in pro ball. Uh, I went back and got my got my degree. Uh, it was a teaching degree in history and government. And my plans were I was going to teach history or government in high school. I was going to be the high school baseball coach. And I was going to be um, an instructor, a motivator, and uh, a guy generally that people enjoyed playing for. But I was also going to be able, I thought, to win and parlay that into a college coach. And then after I won there, who knows what's happening down the road. But it was going to be teaching and coaching. That was, uh, if not for professional baseball, it was going to be teaching and coaching. And that that's, uh, I was very happy. But I, I never wanted to leave anything to chance. So what I did uh, after my first year of baseball, I went and got um, uh, an insurance license. Because you never know, you know, I, I got in the restaurant business because I didn't know if my arm would fall off or not. And then I got uh, I got a license to sell insurance because I didn't know what was going to happen with baseball or the restaurant business. So I was going to be prepared for whatever came along. And uh, it, it's, it's worked out very well. I, I don't think I could have designed a much better life. And uh, I still enjoy what I'm doing, which is the only reason I'm still doing it. A lot of people are winding down. I figure last year was the best year I've ever had as a broadcaster. So winding down isn't really such a good thing for me. I don't do well winding down. I pretty much think I'm winding up. So we'll have to see. We'll have to see how long uh, I can go with this. But loyalty goes a long way. I've had it in the restaurant business since 1973, and I've had it in the broadcast business uh, since I got to the White Sox. Jerry Reinsdorf is a wonderful man to work for, and uh, he uh, he's brought our city, this great city of Chicago. He's brought seven titles. Thank you, Steve Stone, for telling me a story I don't know. My thanks to ABC Sports, WGN TV, and NBC Sports Chicago for those entertaining highlights. Thanks, as always, to T.J. Reeves for putting this podcast on the map, Will Hatzel for his deft editing, T.T. Shinkin for her artistic touch, and Ken Schreiner for always being there. And, of course, to our presenting sponsors, the Polina Market. Find them at polinamarket.com and the Vienna Beef Company in business since 1893. You can find them at viennabeef.com. Join me next time for another edition of Tell Me a Story I Don't Know. I'm George Hoffman, and that's all she wrote. These days, work is in trouble. We've outsourced most of our manufacturing to other countries. And with that, we sent away good jobs and our capability to make things. American Giant is a clothing company that's pushing back against this tide. They make all kinds of high-quality clothing and activewear, like sweatshirts, jeans, dresses, jackets, and so much more. 
right here in the USA. So when you buy American Giant, you create jobs in towns and cities across the country. And jobs bring pride. Purpose. They stitch people together. If all that sounds good to you, visit American-Giant.com and get 20% off your first order when you use code STAPLE20 at checkout. That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com with promo code STAPLE20. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.